0: Welcome to the Influencer Podcast, episode number 329. We are turning the tables today with my friend, Krista Williams from the Almost 30 Podcast. Welcome to the Influencer Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Solomon. If you found yourself here, it means you are ready to unleash the powerful visionary that lives inside you, turning you into an authentic leader who creates influence, impact, and change. Let's get started.
1: Oh my God, being away and when you just pare down and really simplify of your life, like today I'm going to work for three hours, I'm going to focus. And then the rest of the day, I'm going to do my thing. It's crazy when you condense your work into a certain amount of time what you can get done and Mm. how clear you can be. Mm. It was just the best. Um, I'm so glad you're here. I just love you so much. I love you. I loved our walk the other day too. I was just like, God, I I don't always feel so inspired when I talk to people and I don't always feel so um, uplifted. And I feel like a lot of times... I'm in situations where I'm providing insights and just to be with you and really soak in all of your knowledge and all of your insight and the way that you share so kindly and openly is just always a dream. I just really appreciate you and I've always learned so much from you and I'm just really glad to be in your orbit and I'm so excited about the book.
0: Thank you. And back to you, I was actually sharing today, I was, I feel like in some ways... Me, you and Lindsay have kind of come up together yes. in this. Thing. Yes. <laughs> we were raised together. Because I remember meeting you guys for the first time and I blogging. You know, yeah, yo, we were talking
1: about that the other day. You fucking crushed I, that I, presentation at Blogettes. I don't even remember I like if it made sense. I was, <laughs> I was bl- I was blown away. I was like, yo, because me and Lindsay were very we study. Right. Cause we want to be amazing speakers. We want to be amazing podcasters. Whenever you're in an industry, you want to study. Mm-hmm. So I'm like watching you. I'm like
0: this is incredible. And the fuck, the room was packed. It was packed. You crushed. I didn't even realize how packed it was at the time. I I think that's like the other thing, which we can talk about gratitude, but I think having two years of like the world being shut down, I really see how, you know, even if I thought that I was grateful about things, like how much more gratitude I could have for things. Um, because that was a packed conference. And like, what an amazing opportunity that we all had to be able to be of service and to impact and to be there. And um, I remember like, how important it is to not to not take those things so lightly. Mm -hmm. Um, But I remember being there with you guys. And I hadn't had a podcast very long. I don't think that you guys had had a podcast very long. And I just remember really loving you both Mm -hmm. and thinking you were awesome and connecting to you. And then we got to be on each other's podcasts and
1: now, all these years later, here we are. I know. And here we we have the book. Um, before we were talking, it was so fun to talk about human design a little yes. bit. And it's something that you've leveraged within your business. And so many women of our community just love having tools to help them understand themselves better, help them to navigate in the world and really be
0: as much of themselves as possible. So I'd love to just talk a little bit about how you use human design. Yeah. So I first heard about human design, I want to say... Um... About four years ago, a friend of mine had told me about it, and she had been just kind of very gently studying it. And um, she was like, Give me your, your birth date and your location, and et cetera. And I feel like this is like, it's like a running joke with my group of friends. If we have a friend of ours, that's single and she's like going on a date and I'm like, well, I need his birth date and his time. Yes. <laughs> you know? I actually did that with like a stranger the other
1: day. And I was like, I don't want to do this again. Cause I was thinking about it too much. Yeah. I was like, wow, we've got a lot of
0: like karmic <laughs> <stuff."> <laughs> <Connections>. Yes. <gasps> and so she asked for that and she was like, oh, you're like me. You're a manifesting generator. She's emotional authority. I'm sacral authority, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I started diving into it. And it felt very like in line. Mm -hmm. It felt very connected. It felt very true and honest to me and how I show up in the world and how I respond to things and, you know, why it is that I do what I do. And so then I wanted to kind of dive in a little bit deeper. And um, I got my husband's Birth date information, and he is what they call a reflector. And I would tell my friend who was studying human design; she was like, "Whoa, that's like really, really rare." And of course, my have my husband being a reflector, he loves to be rare. He loves <laughs> he loves to be terminally unique, as yes. I say it. And so then he started to get into it, and um, and it's been a really, it's just been really cool to understand. For me, the biggest takeaway of human design with my profile is the sacral authority Mm -hmm. and really rooting in my gut and making decisions from that gut centered place. And even when I'm working with my team or or even just in my relationship with my husband, I will say to them, can you ask me that in a yes, no way Mm -hmm. instead of an open ended way? Because I am going to be able to respond better if I can say yes or no and so it's it's helped me communicate better it's helped me understand myself better it's helped me go easier on myself because i used to feel like you know yeah, yeah why am i why am i doing 15,000 things at once or you know why am i gung ho on this today but then i i feel out of alignment with it tomorrow. And I learned that that is just something that can happen with mansions. And it's actually, we need to thrive on that. We, we need to come from that place if you have a sacral authority. So that's kind of how I've, I've used it. And, um, and the more that I can root in my gut, the more mm-hmm. that I am in alignment and I don't have to chase a thing because things that are for me will just come to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost like with, and it's interesting how it ties in the book
1: with purpose. Like it's almost like a lot of finding your purpose is finding ways to give yourself permission Mm -hmm. to really be who you are. And it's like human design is such a powerful tool for permission, because I think I've been able to lean more into my purpose when I give myself more permission to be who I am. Mm -hmm. So for you and finding purpose, I think I want to talk so much about the book. I, I love it so much. And I've been so grateful that I've been able to read it. But I want to I do want to talk about purpose because I think that's huge for the people in our community and that's something that we all are really striving for. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that and really understand can someone have one purpose? Like how does someone find a purpose and just talk a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, so I share in the book because I think this is something that trips so many people up. Yes. You know, they're like what is what is my purpose or what is my passion, or is there a difference between what purpose passion? and passion? I love that so and, you know, much. what is my vision, and what you you're know, like? S- are you smiling while you're doing it? Right. Like
1: it's like, but I get it. It's like you're like, am I passionate about this? Right, like, do I even like doing this? Yes. And I,
0: I think that if we are asking ourselves those questions, that usually comes from the fact that you don't know you're not rooted in your purpose, and so how I explain it in the book, just from my own experience, I feel like your purpose is always your why, mm-hmm. your passions are the what and what that gives me permission to do is to stay rooted in my why no matter what but then also give myself the space and the freedom to change things if they don't feel in line with me anymore and that's you know i i i mentioned that with passions you know a lot of people are so hard on them, themselves because They're in this career and they don't understand why they're not fulfilled anymore. They don't understand why they're not lit up anymore. They think something is wrong with them because they feel the way that they do. When really I think it's just because your passions have started to pivot, but you're not, you're not following along. And so as long as you can get clear on what your purpose is and you stay rooted in that why, you give yourself the permission to change your passions. And I was talking to a girl about this once and And she was like, well, you know, I just, I don't, I don't know if that's true. I just can't quite figure that out because, you know, I've always been passionate about singing or this or that. And I said, yeah, but think about like your boyfriend from fifth grade, unless you married him, I doubt that you're still passionate about him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you're probably passionate about new things, but why you might've been lit up by him, you know, maybe Mm. it was the connection or the way that he made you feel or whatever, maybe that's still inside of you and a part of you and and could be a part of your purpose and how you want to really share your voice with the world, but your passions do change. Mm. And, um, and clarifying that for myself really allowed, it, it, it gave me so much permission to follow what I think is really my purpose on this earth. And then also remembering that I can change my passions. And that's why I don't do PR anymore because I'm not passionate about PR. It it served its purpose and its time in my life. But then I wanted to activate my purpose in other ways. And so now I do that with a book. I do it with podcasting. I do that with coaching, with teaching. And then who knows where I'm going to be a year from now or two years from now or five years from now. Mm -hmm. And so I always say, start with the why, Mm -hmm. And then from there, you can kind of figure out what the whats may be. Mm. Did you ever have a journey with finding your purpose where you felt
1: like did it upset you? Was there ever that feeling of like I need to find my purpose
0: where you felt like you were lost in the process of it all? For sure. I mean, I've had a lot of uh, moments personally and professionally, so I can give you examples of both of those. But when I was in a transition of, you know, my my PR. Stuff and I was working with a client at the time, and my body had broken out in these crazy hives. Mm -hmm. My dermatologist didn't know what was going on. You know, it's like your body always, yeah, one hundred percent. And so it was like head to toe. I was a hot mess. My cortisol levels were shot. I was exhausted, and I kept trying to like force this solution because I kept being like, "This is my purpose. It's my purpose to you know connect. It's my purpose to communicate. This is what my degree is in." Da 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 da. When I allowed myself the ability to just calm the F down mm-hmm. and just take a moment to breathe and really get quiet and clear, and I actually started working with a life coach because I couldn't figure it out myself. I think that's the other thing that if if you if anyone out there feels that way, are you are you allowing yourself to remain teachable? Are you allowing yourself to remain coachable? Because sometimes we don't know what's best and we don't have all the answers, even when we think that we do. And so being open to the idea of having a coach. And I all also the way that I was raised, I had a lot of shame around getting help. Mm. Because I was raised to believe from my origin story that getting help was weird, therapy was weird, you know, you've got to do it all yourself. If you want to if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. And so I had all these stories and these belief systems about help. And when I was able to shed those and to know that yes, they might've had a place and time to serve me in my life, but they're not serving me now. I, I allowed myself to open up to a new possibility of getting help. And it was through that process that I was able to really get clear on, you know, what about the PR lit me up? You know, what about the, those moments and those connections and being able to articulate and communicate? What about that? lit, lit me up. And for me, I found that it, it really was that power of communication. That is how, you know, that's how I crack open my heart and share it with Mm -hmm. the world. You're, you're the exact same. We we come from that Mm -hmm. planet of communication, wherever that is Mm -hmm. in the universe. And, you know, I used to do that through PR and now I do that through speaking and I do it through writing, but I always... I always kind of have to root in that why. I may not know what or when or how anything's going to necessarily happen, but if I stay true to that why, then then I know that I can come from that place of clarity. So I hope that that answers your question. Yeah, I think that's incredibly powerful too. And it's you know I think there's a
1: power in like deconstructing things. So it's like okay, if I believe that PR is my purpose why? Mm -hmm. Like, what about it do I love? What about it do I not love? What about it lights me up? What about it isn't working for me? And I think that's so much of the process of finding your purpose and finding a path that works for you is the actual work of just getting curious about your experience and how you're feeling and noticing when you feel really good, noticing when you're magnetic. And I think we all have those moments where we've been like, wow, I was really magnetic. Like I really felt in my power. I really felt in my, in my worth. How, can I bring more of those into my life? And I think the deconstruction is so important. But I also think you touched on something that's, that's powerful. And I think this was something that I had to realize and something that I think a lot of people realize is that at first you think that your purpose is your job. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, my purpose is in PR. Like I'm a, it's a PR manager, it's a PR director, like whatever it is. And then you kind of evolve through that and you're like, oh my God, I'm so much more. Mm. Did you ever have that with your job?
0: Yeah, because, you know, PR is not a purpose. It's an action. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. 100%. It's something that I did. Um, and so that's why that I love question, that God's like, yeah, okay, you're right. like, PR, it's my purpose. It's my purpose. It's like, like, I like, made you for this. Right. It's <laughs> like, the, also the reason why you still have a bunch of teenagers standing outside a line waiting to get into American Idol, because yeah. they feel like, you know, American Idol is my purpose, you know, becoming a star is my purpose. That may be a passion of how you activate your purpose, but why do you feel the need to sing? Why do you feel the need to share from that place? What about that is a direct reflection of your soul being shared with the world? And so it's it's getting, I think, more clear on those key elements of, you know, what about your work makes you feel connected to source, connected to a collective consciousness connected to something that is so much greater and more powerful than yourself. And if you can get to that place and deconstruct from that place, I think that that's when you can start figuring out what it is. Yes,
1: 100%.
0: I love too, when you talked
1: a little bit about the origin story, and I think Mm -hmm. that's so powerful. And I really love that within your book, there's it's like you walk people through the process and it's very like Julie Solomon style where it's like, oh, we're gonna do this right now. Where it's like, I'm not gonna tell you, I'm also gonna do this with you. Like, and Sacral you- says, <laughs> Yeah, literally. Sacral <laughs> says, We're actually gonna do it right now. And I'm gonna actually bring value right in this moment and make sure that you get it. Um, what is the origin story? And how did you discover that as something kind of like a linchpin to mm. understanding yourself
0: more? Yeah, you know, an origin story, we all have one. And um to me an origin story is is really they're the stories and the belief systems and you know maybe if you come from a religious background the belief systems around that that really shape and define how you think and feel in the world and how you respond and react in the world and so we all have one that is unique to each and every one of us and um you know we see it in like the comic book worlds right it's like this person that has to you know have have this hero's journey and they come back and they're able to, you know, fight the the shadow. Mm-hmm. And it really is that, I mean, it's mm-hmm. all shadow work. And so for me, my origin story and, and you usually don't really see what that story may be consciously until it smacks you in your face with, with a rock bottom. So um, it's happened to me many of times, one in a relationship, I was married before my, my husband now. And so that divorce taught me a lot about my beliefs around relationships and my issues with codependency and my lack of boundaries. And I share a lot in the book and we can talk about that today. And then another part was my shame around money. And that came to a moment where I get a call from my husband and he said, when are you going to, when were you going to tell me about the credit card? And what he didn't know is that for the last three years prior to that, I had been racking up credit card debt and I had slowly but surely racked up about $30,000 of credit card debt and I had completely kept it from him. And that omission obviously in and of itself is a betrayal and that's a lie. So I'd been lying to myself and to him about this credit card debt. And I mentioned this to you briefly on our walk, but it was such a, the rock bottom for me was like this crazy manifestation that I had created of denial and delusion, like I would tell myself things like, oh, he's just going to book a job and then I'll pay the credit card debt off and he won't ever find out. Or I'm going to get a bunch of brand deals and pay this thing off in time and he'll never find out. Or I'm going to win the lottery, Mm -hmm. even though I'm not buying lottery tickets. for sponsoring the show <laughs> and like mm-hmm. somehow pay it off and it's going to be fine. And it was all of these just very delusional way of thinking mm-hmm. that got me in this moment. And I want to say too, that in a lot of ways, delusion and relentlessness for me can be a gift. Yeah. Because it allows me this focus to not give up. It allows me this capacity to think limitlessly but it can also be a major defect. Mm-hmm. And so in this moment, it was a massive defect in personality and character flaw that was coming out and there was no way to hide it. I couldn't get away from it. And in that moment of this unraveling of now having to deal with, you know, breaking my husband's heart and having to admit that I betrayed him and betrayed myself. And, you know, all of this stuff came, came up. And the one question that just kept ringing in my head was like, why... Why am I so afraid to be honest about money? Why am I so afraid to be honest about my fear around money, my fear around making money, my fear around managing money, my fear around you know, losing money? And it's because that's how I learned to survive. I came from a family that did not have a lot my, we came from a very, very small town in Tennessee. My dad liter, literally grew up in a shack with eight brothers. Mm. Um, I remember being a little girl and walking to the outhouse to go to the bathroom because my grandparents could not afford heat or indoor plumbing. And this was not 1942. <laughs> I'm 37, this was the 90s. Um, and, you know, and then the shack was torn down. And then my grandmother lived in a double wide trailer for the rest of her life. She never saw the ocean in person, she never left Tennessee her entire life. She lived until she was 91 years old. And so this idea of scarcity, this idea of, I mean, my dad literally wore a blue collar to work every day. Mm. It is that small town blue collar mentality that as long as you hopefully have enough money to pay your bills, that's it. There is, there's, there's nothing else. So Mm -hmm. I didn't know that there was anything else other than that. I didn't know what was possible outside of the scarcity mindset. I also grew up in a home where there was a lot of alcohol and the plays of that, which I talk about in the book. Um, I also grew up, you know, with a mom that clearly had her own stuff around money because she would come home from Walmart and like rush into her closet to hide her shopping bags Mm. because she didn't want to, I guess, quote unquote, get in trouble for spending money. Mm. And so all of these things that at a very young age, I would just witness Mm and absorb. And I was like a sponge. And I was like, Oh, I guess you aren't, I guess it's not okay to spend money. I guess it's not okay to make money. There's not a lot of money available. Um, My parents got divorced. I remember screaming matches about money. I mean, this was my, this was my belief. This was my origin story around money. So it started to make sense as to, Oh, of course I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. I don't know that there's another option. I, I only see from my own lens of what I'm seeing right now. But I was also an adult. And so whatever those issues were, were no longer childhood issues or daddy issues or mommy issues. They were Julie issues. And I had to either face them or not. And so this this being found out, which by the way is my worst fear ever mm-hmm. is being found out. And here I was being found out. I could see you having that as your Ooh, fear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to like, be found out. I'm bad. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no, I'm perfect. Yes, I'm perfect. <laughs> Everything's fine. Everything's yeah, fine. Literally. And, and that's, and, but what's crazy <gasps> is, and me being, I'm, I'm a massive manifester. Mm-hmm. And so, but sometimes that can work for me or not. And so I literally manifested being found out because I was of so course. terrified of being found out. Yes. It totally makes sense. So I um, I was found out and I immediately, you know, I got into therapy. I got into an incredible 12-step group called Al-Anon and really started to deconstruct my behaviors and my patterns and my way of thinking and why I reacted the way that I did, why, you know, I responded the way that I did. Um, the other thing that I started to notice, even as I started to make a lot of money, um, and I think women, from what I've noticed through coaching, can relate to this. So I think it's important to share. I've seen women, including myself, do one of two things. They either make a lot of money and then it's like they throw it underneath a bed, Mm -hmm. like in a shoebox, because they're like, I don't want to lose the money or, you know, I don't know what to do with this. Or they take it and just like, they don't even have it for 2.5 seconds and they already spend it. Mm -hmm. And both of those are worthiness, worthiness issues around money. Mm-hmm. I'm not worthy of using the money. I'm not worthy of having the money. I'm it's not like the hot potato. Keeping. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I'm either going to like stash it under my bed and not ever touch it, or I'm going to spend it faster than I can make it. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things were, were, were coming through with this origin story and, and even playing out, you know, it's not just money. It's, you know, with, with other people, with relationship dynamics, my lack of boundaries, mm-hmm. my my codependency issues. Mm-hmm. You know, I love just, just to stick my head in the sand and act, act like it's fine, it's fine, I'll figure it out. And so that was really the gift of this whole thing with my origin story and, and really what it had allowed me to kind of see in a new and clear way. And from that, and I talk about this in the book, what is my key to freedom, what I found to be my key to freedom is awareness, acceptance, and action. Mm. They're known as the three A's and therapy circles and 12-step groups. I didn't make them up, but realizing that they were available to me, realizing that I could become aware of the reality of the situation that I was in and just the awareness of of what is, then I had the ability to accept what is exactly the way that it is, not the way that I want it to be, not the way that I think that it should be, Mm. but just accept exactly what is from that place of acceptance, I could then take action. Mm -hmm. And I could take action in a way that was serving me, not in a way that was being detrimental to my growth and to my relationships. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, the awareness piece is so huge. That's what I feel like in so much healing, awareness is so underrated. Like our awareness is really, if you continue to bring like loving kindness and loving awareness to whatever you're trying to heal or go through, that's a lot of the work it can be painful, it can be messy, it can be really dramatic, it can be juicy, it can be long, it can be all of these things. But I'm like, when I bring loving awareness to my issues and to the things I'm trying to heal, that has been like the most powerful thing for me. Mm. Then you can bring loving awareness, choose something different, you know, accept just like you're talking about. But it's interesting, you know, with the, the $30,000, it's almost like that was like your proverbial closet. Mm-hmm. You know, your mom's putting the Walmart bags in the closet. You're like, okay, I've got to put some money in the closet. I've got to hide it. Mm-hmm. And with, you know, the codependency and the boundaries, I think that was something I want to talk about money as well. But I also want to talk about the codependency and boundaries because I'm actually understanding that for myself as well. And I never would have thought, you know, I remember Lindsay would be like, I'm codependent. And I'm like, yeah, you are, bitch. I'm not <laughs> like, whatever. It sucks like, to be you. Yeah, I'm like, wow. <laughs> like crazy. I thought codependency was you, I don't know. I thought it was like, you really cared about what people think, Mm. but I do in a way that's different. Mm. It's like, you know, you perceive it to be different, but yeah. So I'm learning now about codependency
0: and boundaries. What was the moment where you're like, Oh my God, I'm fucking codependent. Yeah. So the way that I define codependency, I don't know if this is like the technical Mm -hmm. term, but it's where it's when Codependency to me is when you don't know where you leave off and other people begin. Story in my life. I would say that I'd be like, when I'm doing interviews and even in conversation,
1: I'm talking to people and sometimes they'll be like, so what's going on with you? And I'm like, me? I, I'm i like, who's me? Right? I honestly have no, I'm like, who are you talking? Are you, I, oh, you'll say, well, Lindsay and I, A hundred percent. We. hundred percent. Or I'm like, well, I fucking suck. Or so, you know, I'm just okay. like, oh, I'm fucking not doing anything. And then I'm, I'm doing a lot. It's mm-hmm. my ability to lose myself mm-hmm. in someone's else's experience
0: mm-hmm. is my gift. And it's also crazy. Yeah. And I think that if a lot of empaths listen to this podcast, which I know that they do, we can easily fall into the there's a fine line between empathy, compassion and full-blown codependency. And for my fellow empaths, something that really helped me with that codependency line is that I always thought because again, I don't know where other people leave off and I begin when I'm, you know, when I'm not in a covered state of codependency, but I always thought that I had really good ideas about how everybody else should live and if they would just listen to me, the world would be a better place, their life would be a better place, they could get what they want, you know, and maybe that's true. But at the end of the day, I'm not anyone else's I'm not God. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not that powerful. You know, I can't even I can't even necessarily do that in my own life 24 seven. So what makes me think that I know what's best for other people, even if I am so self righteous that I think that that is so true. And so What's helped me is that, and I give some tools in the book, but if you offer help more than once, you're trying to control. And so the awareness there is like when someone else is speaking, I'm like, do I feel this urge to offer help? And if they don't want my help, am I going to feel an urge to offer it again and again and again and again? The other thing that has helped me tremendously is I, I do something called I wait for the question mark. If someone does not ask me a question, I do not jump in with my great ideas Mm. and my thoughts and my innovations and my opinions and what I think is best for them. Mm. And those two things have really, really helped me with being able to hold space in a way where I'm saying, I see you, I hear you, I'm with you, but I am not you and I don't know what's best for you. Yes. I think that's the biggest thing is I don't know
1: what's best for you. And really letting go of that. I had a friend I was really close with for a really, I'm still close with her, but we were in this mode where I remember she was in this really, really toxic relationship for still is um, 20 years of my life. And I remember this moment where I was fucking ill. I was like, I cannot. And I wasn't even in the relationship. Right. I was like, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) It was, I woke up, I was like crying. I'm like, I was sick. And I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is not your life, your Mm -hmm. relationship. It's not going to change. You need to completely let go of expectation that this person's going to do what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. Learn the lesson you want them to learn. Mm -hmm. And just like, I was like, wow, I need to really let go of this. Mm -hmm. And it's just been, at that time, it was codependency and it's sort of shown up in different areas of my life. And I think especially as a woman, it shows up for me, where I will prioritize people's needs over my own, Mm -hmm. I will be incredibly uncomfortable in a situation where I'm not in service to the other person fully. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of my pattern where I'm like, and same for you. It's like, be offering help, trying to control, giving, you're like, my worthiness is in your service to people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how can I bring it back and like bring my own energy back? Mm -hmm. And it's like, my worthiness is in my existence and not so much my, what connections do you want? What advice do you want? How can I listen? How can I support you? How can I do all these things? And it was almost like, I would completely abandon myself to be whatever this person would want me to be. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people would probably think that of me, but I don't think as much. But when you're in an intimate moment, especially with certain type of women, because it would be sort of like my mom dynamic where I'd be playing out that mother dynamic of having this experience with a powerful woman or a woman that um, has a specific energy signature where I'd very much be in a submissive mode to them. And I was like a dream for narcissists a lot of time, because I was like the best sort of like sidekick Mm. for their experience, Mm. you know? Yeah. But you're, I mean, going to Al-Anon, like that's powerful and really getting that serious of help. I think for a lot of people, they sort of have these ideas. And I think the Insta therapy creates this situation where people are like, I read a graphic and I am healed. I am healed. (laughs) I am all good. And I understand this. Or I am... Yes. Yes. Or, or they live with the label. Right. And it's, you know, you're like, I'm a recovered codependent I'm, you know, in recovery. So what was like the process for you where you're like, I'm going to actually take the steps to work on my boundaries and codependency and take this very seriously?
0: Yeah. So it was, it was when I knew that what I wasn't working, but what I was doing wasn't working. And, you know, I am someone who, being a manifesting generator, like I want what I want when I want it. Most of the time I get it. But when I don't get it, and I, and, and that's not in this kind of, um, self-righteous kind of way, but that just goes back to my relentlessness, my focus. Like I can, I can just make it happen. But when I don't, you know, it can be, it can be crushing. It can be detrimental. It can be, you know, the thing with the credit card is a perfect example of that. And I knew that whatever I was doing may have been working in some ways, but it it wasn't, I was not the best version of myself. I was not living in my highest power. I was not, there was no God in it. Mm-hmm. And so that idea of like, where is the God in this? Like, how, how can I find that? You know, almost 30, baby. I'm like, say it again. Yes. (laughs) Like, how can I get to that place? And so for me, I was in therapy with, um, with a, with a therapist who had some experience in 12 step. And, you know, she had been saying to me, like, you know, Julie, I really think that you should try Al-Anon. And she could only kind of, there's, there's a saying in Al-Anon, you say it, you say it once. And that's it. Love that. And so she said it and I, you know, I was like, yeah, sure. You know, but it's like, I'm not the one with the problem. 100%. <laughs> Once everyone listens to me. Right. I'm good. Right. I've got it all together. Can't you tell? <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, it's like, then then it's like perfect as a coach. <laughs> exactly. You're <laughs> like, isn't it weird too? It's so fucking weird because
1: that my whole thing of like immersing myself in someone's experience, always making it about them, asking questions, fully being in service is my, Achilles heel. And it's
0: my greatest gift as an interviewer. It's what you do for a living. Yes. Same. Crazy. Same. And that's why I'm like, for anyone that's a coach out there, if you have not done the work on yourself, you are are doing yourself and any kind of client that you would ever want to me. a major. (laughs) You're scaring me, honestly. (laughs) And that was the thing that this coach, this therapist was basically saying to me of like, you need to go and get your own help. You want to help someone go help yourself. And so it was, it was that moment of the credit card debt and then kind of, you know, kind of beating around that bush, yeah. of like not wanting to go to it. And that's, that's a big thing for Al-Anon's because Al-Anon is, is a program for anyone that has ever been affected by out, drugs or alcohol, whether that's a parent, a, you know, a spouse, a sibling, a friend, whatever. And a big thing for alanonics is that you know i'm not the one with the problem i'm not the one with the bottle i'm not the one with this or that but what i there's another saying in alanon that i'll share that they say what a bottle is to an alcoholic what what drinking is to an alcoholic thinking is to an alanonic mm-hmm. so my disease was my thinking and i had to learn how to think differently because i couldn't feel differently until i thought differently and so when i got sick and tired of being sick and tired is when the real transformation happened for me. I got sick and tired of my own BS, and so I was like, "Fine, I'll go to a meeting." And I went to my first meeting in the Valley, here in Los Angeles, and I just remember like crying the entire. I was just sitting in the meeting, and I was just like, "I could." It was like faucet, and just years and years, just like release, release, release. And you know, I, you you hear things in those meetings that you're just like, "Oh my gosh, is this person in my brain?" this is so true to me it's so in line to me and so i kept staying curious i kept going back i kept doing therapy i kept reading books you know i i really tried to and me kind of being the fact finder researcher that i am that's what i do and i just i kept going down the hill and down you know down the the, the road and and then really putting it to practice and that's where the codependency and the boundaries had to come in and i had to figure out i didn't even know what what boundaries were like, I couldn't define them for myself. And and that was something that, you know, going through a 12 step program and reading books, I knew that I had to get clear on. So it was, it was through the phases of that recovery and learning more about this is this is why I behave the way that I do. This is why I act the way that I do. This is why I think, you know, to think the way that I do. I was able to get clearer on that. And um boundaries and codependency are they're like, you know, cousin's And for me with boundaries, I realized, and this is kind of another issue with my codependency and my people pleasing, I know that I'm living in my boundaries when I no longer delay my happiness. Mm -hmm. And for the majority of my life, I would constantly delay my happiness for the happiness of other people. You know, something as simple, Krista, as like, you know, hey, Julie, do you want to go have sushi tonight or pizza? Well, you know, my sacral authority is going to know 2.5 seconds what I want. But if this person wants to have pizza and I want sushi, I'm going to be like, oh yeah, we can go We can go get pizza. It's fine. I mean, it's that's fine. like every woman.
1: Yeah. It's, it's like, where do you want to go to dinner? It's like, I don't know. I don't care. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Wherever I'm like, fucking,
0: I know. Yeah, I know. But I do know. Like, yeah, I know because 100%. I know. And and so even something as yes, simple as that course. is abandoning yourself. Yes. It's abandoning your truth. And so if if it's so simple for me to just not even consciously know those things, even though my gut would be like, man, I really don't want to freaking have pizza, but I'm going to do it anyway. Those little things start to compound into much bigger things. And then, you know, you find yourself being married to someone that you had no business being married to, or you find yourself, you know, saying yes to having children if you don't want to have children or saying yes to a job that you never wanted to have or whatever. And that may be for somebody. And it can really turn into a, a massive, ugly beast. And so... The boundary piece for me and what I learned through my own experience going through Al-Anon was that delay my happiness. And then also when I don't subject myself to the abuse of other people or even of myself, because I can be very self-critical, which is abusive. I can be very hard on myself, which is abusive. I can be very, um, you know, I can go into like this denial and like enable behaviors of other people, which is very abusive to me. And so really learning how to advocate, really learning what was true and honest for me first mm-hmm. and then being able to advocate from that place mm-hmm. was huge. Mm-hmm. And um and I I I have to really give a lot of that to my experience in in a 12 step program. Mm.
1: Yeah, the denial is so wild. It's like <laughs> it's just like sad cuz you're it's like your compassion, the compassion and empathy is just used,
0: you use it against yourself. Mm-hmm. And denial runs deep. Yeah. Man. And so we tend to find people around us that can also justify and rationalize yeah. the denial. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's just sitting in that big old denial. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's why you see families all the time that may be riddled with alcoholism or, or drug addiction or whatever. And everyone's just like sitting around acting like it's fine. It's mm-hmm. why you can see people, you know, on national television do insane things. Mm-hmm. And then in a blink of an eye, just back to business, yep. back to life, business as usual. Yes. And we all learn this from our origin story. Yes, These are all triggers that we have from whatever traumatic situation has maybe come up in our lives. With the self-talk, I think a lot of our community and people listening, um,
1: are aware that they want to change their self-talk or they want to first become aware of it. What are some of the things that you noticed yourself saying to yourself in your self-talk? And how did you support yourself in changing that conversation?
0: Yeah, for me, um, and this 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 process works very well for me in the way that I work. And I've mentioned how I'm I'm a researcher and I'm a fact finder. And so for me to fact-find myself is like a fun project. Mm-hmm. Um I like to take like an inventory list. Like here are all the things that I think and feel about myself. The good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, I think that if I take a break, the world's gonna end. (laughs) Even though like saying that out loud is just so like, okay, how self-righteous can you be? No, I think that's like the most normal.
1: Everyone thinks that.
0: Right. So it just, all all that kind of stuff. You know, I'm not creative. Mm -hmm. That was a big one that I used to tell myself because I told myself that you had to be you know, um, to be creative, you had to like, I know exactly. You had to be Carrie Underwood. Yes. Or you I had to be felt like, like,
1: if you're creative, you're lazy.
0: And if you're one. not,
1: yep. you're, you get stuff done. Yeah. So I'm always like, I'm not creative. I get stuff done, you know, nope. like, Right. Yeah. I'm not, I can't do art. I've got to like have a job, you know, who's the most creative. She'd always be like, talk about
0: creativity. And I'm like, we've got stuff to To do. do.
1: What do you mean? You want to be creative Creative. today?
0: And then I, (sighs) you know, my work as a publicist, I would work with these singers or these, you know, actors or these people that society say, these are our creative beings. And I would make up and tell myself that, you know, I, I'm not a singer. I don't sound like Carrie Underwood. I'm not an actress. I don't act like, you know, whatever it was when I was little that I loved to do. And so I quickly um, put that light out. I quickly blew my own light out and my ability to be creative. And then, you know, I would date, you know, a lot of struggling musicians and just really bad, addictive people that would be like, well, yeah, you're not an artist. Like, you know, you, you you don't play an instrument or you don't do this or you don't do that. And so I think for me, it was really getting clear on like, what are the things that I've been telling myself so long that are allowing me to abandon myself? Not that I ever wanted to be an actress or a singer, but it does root back to the work that we both get to do now, which is podcasting and and writing and doing all of this stuff that, going back to my why, I always knew why, because it's how I shared my soul with the world. But I didn't think that I was worthy of that. And I started listening to... Other people and other places and other ideas, and then those became my ideas. Those became my belief systems. And so, doing an inventory of all of the things that you tell yourself: "I'm not confident. I don't know. I don't know what's best. I, you know, I'm not clear. I can't do that. It's not possible." And then, you know, sitting with that and really seeing it. For me to see something visually, it just makes it more real for me. Getting it out of my head and onto paper, and then from that. Just take a moment to be aware of, wow, this is everything that I am thinking and believing about myself. Now, what is true and what is not true, and can I accept that? Mm-hmm. And then starting from there, I think that that is a good is a good place that answers your question,
1: yeah, and then you can like plug back into the origin story, yeah, you know, you can kind of go to these things, from? yeah, where do all these come from? Where did I hear this? Where did I see this? Where is this serving me in some ways to have this idea about myself and have this belief about myself? But I've also felt like the most important part for me in that was becoming the observer through meditation and mindfulness mm-hmm. to be like, to be able to hear my thoughts and be like, huh, what's going on over here? Mm-hmm. What are you saying? What are you feeling? And from a human design perspective, you know, I'm not emotional. So I'm feeling whatever the room is feeling. Sometimes my emotions are not my own. So I really have to check in and be like, is this mine or is this not? And I think if anyone's interested in human design, you can also check in on that. What were some of the beliefs that you've rewritten and you've really seen just change your life and your experience because you rewrote those beliefs?
0: Yeah, there was a belief that I had that, um, you know, not taking the corporate route is very dangerous. So I need to stay in this type of business. Um, because and even coming from my parents, I mean, they both weren't college educated. You know, my mom ran away when she was 16 years old and married my dad, and had my brother when she was 17 and me wow. when she was 21. So to them, it was like being able to go to college and get a degree and like work in some corporate environment and have four oh one k and health insurance. and like you have a guaranteed paycheck every two weeks. How could you want anything more than that? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you to want something more than that? That's shameful. How dare you? And so that that is what I believed. i believe I believed that something was inherently bad about me and wrong about me because I didn't want to have that path. My My, every being, every morsel, every molecule in my body was raging against that. But I kept, I kept going anyways, because that's what I was supposed to do, quote unquote. And so for me, getting clear on that and saying, okay, I see this, but this is not mine. This is not my fear. This is not my belief. This is not, that that, that's my parents' stuff. So thank you for trying to keep me safe, but I'm going to give that back to you. And now I'm going to set on a new path of what I believe is possible. And that was believing that I could trust myself enough to try out what I wanted to do that was entrepreneurial, which is a very creative and artistic endeavor, that I wanted to be able to create a type of work environment that I actually enjoyed, that actually lit me up, that I got to have conversations with people that inspired me that I got to actually be an architect for change and not just some run-of-the-mill, you know, and that's how I felt in corporate. For a lot of people, they love a corporate environment. But for from, from my true self, I felt like just this vacant mm-hmm. version of myself, trying to fit into something that wasn't meant to be. And I saw that in the relationship with my first husband. I married him because I thought that's what I was supposed to do because it was safe because, you know, and I even had, you know, I had family members be like, Julie, no one is ever going to love you as much as he does. And what's wrong with you? He's normal. He's not a drug addict. He's not, you know, a bum. He's not this. He's not that. So what is wrong with you for not staying in this marriage? Why can't you just figure it out? Why can't you just love him through it? Why? But like in my sacral, everything was just saying like, absolutely not. And it just kept getting louder and louder and louder until I couldn't hide from it anymore. Um, and so those are two really big instances in my life where, where I saw that shift. And I think for anyone listening, if you have that little nudge, that voice, you know what it is. We all have it. That voice that is telling you yes or no, or this or that. It's just going to keep getting louder Mm -hmm. and louder and louder until you do something about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for some of us, it's a divorce. For some of us, it's, you know, completely changing your career. For some of us, it's, you know, your husband finding out that you were hiding $30,000 of credit card debt, whatever it is, but it's going to catch up to you sooner or later.
1: Yeah. Did you, would you say the divorce was a rock bottom or
0: did you have a rock bottom moment The divorce was a rock bottom, but I think that it was years of like a slow bottom and then me trying to like avoid and fix the bottom. I married um, a guy that I had dated in college and we were, we had been together for seven years, kind of off and on, but mostly on, because I would have these moments that, you know, I would, some new guy would come along and I would dump him and like run off to this hot mess of a guy and like immediately fall in love and... You know, it was just disgusting. Mm -hmm. And then when that (laughs) wouldn't work, shocker, then I would run back to him because he was like my baby blanket. Mm -hmm. You know, he was my safety net. Mm -hmm. And so we did this dance. And of course, you know, it's like, I wasn't being, I was in my 20s. I wasn't being honest with him. Like he never knew about, the side guys and all of that. And, but it was this discovery of me trying to find myself. So Mm -hmm. every single one of those moments were rock bottom moments. And then finally, I believed that story of something must be wrong with me because he is a great guy. Like he's a wonderful guy and he loved me deeply and he cared so much, but we weren't meant to be together. But I married him anyway, and we were married for a year. And then when I got kind of to this other rock bottom, I remember looking around the place that we were living in and in our condo and being like, this cannot be the rest of my life. Like I have got to get the F out of here now. And it was just that gut was like, you can't run for, you've been running from this for seven years. You can't run from this anymore. And it was horrible. I mean, what I put him through was awful. Yeah. You know, I wish that I, I wish I would have been the person that I am now. So I could have had the confidence and the strength to say after, you know, the first couple of months of meeting him, being like, "Hey, this this is not the right <laughs> fit." It would have saved a lot of. Isn't you know... that hilarious? You
1: are like, "Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa!" I am noticing my codependency and boundaries, right?
0: But I didn't have the tools, <laughs> of course. And so that's when I have to remember, like, I have to, I have to go easy on that twenty-one-year-old Julie. Of she didn't know what she was doing. She was so freaking lost. She was so scared. <sighs> she was so wrapped up in being whatever she needed to be for everyone else, so everyone else felt okay. And I think she really did. She really tried to do the best that she could do at that time. And that's how I know that today I can have my amends. And even though we don't speak, and I I probably won't ever speak to him about this, I've I've made my amends with that. And yes. so I know that my side of the street is clean. And now he's happily married. He's got kids. Like, it's all great. Yes. But it it took me going through that. And then, you know, and then having my heart broken by these other, you know, idiots, you know, yeah. just all of this stuff to then get to a place where I could finally say what I mean and mean what I say and not say it mean. Mm. Cause that was the other thing for me. I would either be like a freaking doormat that you could just walk all over. I remember one time, this skeezy guy that I dated, um, there was like this club that we used to go to And I get there one night and he's already there. And he just kind of looks at me. He's on his Blackberry that tells you when this was. And uh, he's super tall, tatted up, you know, rocker guy. And he just looks at me and he was like, and I was like, what? And he was like, you're here. You're so predictable. And I just, yes, your face. I remember in that moment, like, you know, that feeling like Uh my throat just sunk into my stomach and I was just like, I will never be predictable ever again. Thank you for that gift. You like light the place on fire. Uh, I walked out and like, 100% I never talked You're to him like, again. Get ready, bitch. But he was right. He was so right. Wow. I was such a pathetic, predictable, like young girl at yeah. that time. And I, I have so much compassion for her and I love her so much. And she was, you know, scrappy and, and, you know, would figure it out. But, it was moments like that, that were like, that was a rock bottom for me of like, wow, he like, I am, I'm so, I'm so available. I'm so predictable. I'm whatever he wants me to be, whenever he wants me to be. Mm -hmm. And he looks like he just fell out of a dumpster. Like what is is happening? And so that, that was, that was huge throughout my twenties of those rock bottoms and, and really figuring out now how to, how to advocate. And so I, I, I could be a doormat that you could walk all over, or I would be like this tyrant that would just annihilate you. And just like, how dare you not read my mind and give me what I need. And it's your fault. And like just a freaking tornado, I'm going to blow through you and annihilate you. Mm -hmm. None of those things are great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) None of them are. But it's because I didn't know how to advocate for myself. I didn't know how to stand up for myself. I didn't have boundaries. I didn't love myself enough.
1: Yeah. It's like you wait till they push you mm-hmm. to that moment where you're like, I'm going to freak the fuck out. Yeah. yeah. It's, it was, you know, sometimes you wake up in the morning and you're up early and your brain just kind of like doing what it's doing. It's like just going on these neural pathways where it's like, all right, we're going to think about the stressful things. We're going to think about what's going wrong. And we're going to think about like the random Things And I was apologizing to all my ex-boyfriends in my head. I was like having this amazing journey of being like, I'm so sorry that I was blah, blah. And it was like so joyful. I'm like, this is so amazing. I would pay so much money to just apologize to them. Mm -hmm. Even when I did plant medicine, I did ayahuasca in Costa Rica years ago. Dude, I fucking... I went through all of the hearts that I had broken mm-hmm. in this journey. And it mm-hmm. was like so painful. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh just my Oh, it was so painful. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I just completely destroyed you mm-hmm. and annihilated you. Because mine was like, when you were talking about with your one relationship, your ex-husband, you would go to the other guys. I was so addicted to the feeling of being desired mm-hmm. that I would always just cheat, different Mm -hmm. relationship. Like it was like that feeling of being desired was so addictive to me. And even as sometimes now where it's Mm -hmm. like a chemical feeling where I want that so bad because I never felt desired as a kid. So I really, really relate to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you talk about, you know, your situation with your husband, how did you prepare yourself to be with someone in a healthy way where you were like, I'm going to do it different. And I want this to be
0: Something that lasts, and I want it to feel like feel healthy, yeah. um Jonathan, who's my husband who I adore, and he's magical and amazing and a reflector and an actor and an Enneagram four and <laughs> all all of the things. um he when I met him, i I hadn't quite gotten, obviously because I lied to him about the credit card debt and all of that. I hadn't quite gotten to the other side of a lot of stuff, but we've been together for 10 years now and going on 10 years. And um, I think, and we, we talk about this. I think that it has been an ongoing process. I think the first like four years of our marriage was really about us discovering ourselves more. And he's 15 years older than me. He's 52. He's been married before also, and has just had a very different life and, you know, a lot more years than I have had. But for me in in this marriage, and I think what makes it work and what makes it different is that the first piece that you were just talking about with desire, I would get very bored with people. Yes. And what I learned in Al-Anon- Once they liked me back, I'm like, (laughs) right. I gotta go. I gotta go. Um, But what I learned in Al-Anon is like, my part of my kind of makeup, my defect, disease, whatever you would label it as, I'm not going to be satisfied with a normal, quote unquote, normal guy. That's what's up. I need somebody who's a little bit, you know, they they got a flair to them. And that may not always be fun. (laughs) Yes. But just going easier on myself, knowing that, you know, I've tried the the perfect on paper guy and it doesn't work. I've also tried the disasters and that doesn't work. I need to have somebody that's kind of in the middle. And John is very much that. So I feel very desired by him. I find him still 10 years in to be very, I'm very physically and sexually attracted to him. Um, I'm very emotionally connected to him. And luckily I found a man who about four years into our marriage had his own rock bottom. He remembered a sexually traumatic event. He was sexually abused when he was younger and just kind of during the Me Too movement stuff, it it like, Mm -hmm. it came out. And so he ended up going, he kind of set me down and was like, um, I think that I have a lot of issues. I know that I have a lot of issues and I was sexually abused and, um, like i'm i'm sick like i'm emotionally and mentally sick and i'm like okay nice to meet you for the yes, first time yes um but i think that it was our decision to go get our own help to go down our own roads that allowed us to really come to this beautiful place of interdependence and i don't think my husband would would care by sharing with this, but, you know, he's been through every, you know, N-A-A-S, like you name it, he's been through it all. Mm -hmm. Um, but for him, it's, it's the codependency and the love addiction. Mm -hmm. And so when he was able to identify that and identify the root of where that came from, from his own sexual trauma, um, he was able to really start getting the help that he needed because he would go through, you know, he would, do a bunch of drugs and then cut clean or drink a lot and then cut clean. And it's like, it wasn't fixing the main problem for him. So when he was able to really identify that core for him, which was the sexual trauma, he was able to really do the work. And um, I think that's what has been able to save our marriage is that he has a process and, you know, therapy and programs and stuff that he works. And I have my own thing and we're able to really, come to a place of compassion and love for each other and hold space in a way that is really, really deep on, on a really deep soul level. Mm-hmm. And if you're into the woo, apparently we've had like seven lives together. So I'm there's sure. also that. I'm sure. <laughs> Me and Lindsay too.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Um, yeah,
1: in that it's, it's crazy because those things, they just bring you closer together. Mm-hmm. You know, they just really crack you open in a way that a life of perfection and peace and ease doesn't always do. Mm -hmm. And it's it's so interesting because I've heard of that a good amount where there's all of a sudden this unlocking of a memory Mm. and you're able to really see what had happened and sort of why you are the way you are. And I think in almost in a lot of those situations where you're in NA or SA or you have those type of tendencies or addictions, a lot of times it goes back to sexual assault yeah. and trauma. Yeah. And so, was that the first time he had ever really sort of come to that realization? Yeah. Wow. And he, um,
0: and for for that with him, with you know, a lot of just issues that he had had throughout his life with with sex and with love. Um, and for him, what he was able to even uncover it more that um, the trauma was, the sexual trauma was a huge kicking off point. But then when he was a little boy, he was dyslexic. And it was back when they didn't test for things. They didn't, if you had a learning disability, then you were just special needs and you're going to go on the short bus. And, you know, they yeah. they did not support you. And he remembered um, having to stand up in the middle of class and read. And he got so scared that he peed on himself in mm-hmm. front of the entire class. And so there was just a lot of shame around him speaking up and being able to use his voice. And then his voice was taken away from him when he was uh, sexually assaulted. And and so it was this perpetual, like how how do I give and receive love? And how do I give and receive a- affection? And then that compounded into a multitude of different addictions throughout you know, his life. And then um remembering that, um, remembering that moment allowed him to get to the root of of his of his mm-hmm. his love, love stuff. Yeah, I would call it. What a gift. It really, it really is. Do you guys it's do really couples therapy together or what's we your... have? Okay. Yeah, we have in the past. We haven't, I think the last time we did couples therapy was like 2016, 2017. Yeah. Um, it's interesting when I started really working on myself. Um, and he really started working on himself. We haven't we haven't need felt the need to go back there. I mean, we've definitely had challenging moments since then, but we're able to really meet each other from a kind and loving place. We don't yell. Mm. Um, we don't, we have in the past, but Mm -hmm. you know, now we, we don't scream in our home. We don't yell. Even if it's like trying to yell at the kids to get their attention, we don't yell in the home. I will go to them and talk to them. Mm. And that's for both of us that yelling and screaming are big triggers because that's what would happen in our homes. Even if my mom needed me, she would just scream and it was was so triggering. So it's, it's just even little things like that, that allow us to regulate our, our emotions more and our nervous system more has also been really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and really for me, understanding what compassion is because mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was for a very long time and, um, and learning more about him of like, you know, this is why he communicates the way that he does or say, or this is why he's saying this right now. And knowing that I don't have to fix him, mm-hmm. I can just let him speak and share and just be there.
1: Yeah, with codependency, it's like a blurred line, Mm -hmm. compassion and control, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to fix someone or control them. Mm -hmm. And I'm really learning that difference of how are you actually being truly compassionate where you're a witness to not trying to change, Mm -hmm. trying to be understanding, but not trying to control or you know, just like insert yourself yeah. into it. It's so hard. And I feel like so many people listening that maybe are codependent or empathetic, just having a little noodle on that concept because there is such a difference between the two.
0: Yeah, there is. And that that really helped me when I was able to, to truly, not only conceptually understand what I'm about to say, but actually believe it is that the most loving thing that I think you could do for anyone is giving them the dignity to live their own life and to experience life and to have the consequences of life because that's going to allow them to have their own rock bottoms. You know, if I kept interjecting into my husband, like what if, what if, he, if he even remembered the sexual trauma? Who knows? But when I'm able to get out of the way a little bit and let someone experience life you know, miraculous things can happen. And I think that's the hardest thing. I heard a man say once in a 12 step room, and this was so powerful to me that he said that he had to let his son hit a Mm -hmm. rock bottom, even if that meant his son killing himself Mm -hmm. and that he could not stop it. And I was just like, I mean, as a mom, Mm -hmm. especially I was like, wow, I don't know if I could say that, but wow, like, that's some surrender right there. Mm-hmm. That is some powerful surrender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it, it only delays things.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to be with someone just kind of keeping them at, I've always thought about that, especially in relationships, if you're just keeping them at that level where they barely, they almost are going to hit the rock bottom, but you're not letting them hit it. Here's the cushion. Yeah. Here's the cushion. Every time you're kind of preventing them from that, you're preventing them from really like some of the most important parts of their life and their experience. And I realized that in friendships, I realized that in my relationships, it's like you really have to just be witness to whatever people's processes. And even in the book, you talked a lot about something I really related to, which is one of your core values being freedom. Mm. And I think that was something I had to realize in my life of when I'd kind of try and figure out my values or my um, what motivates me. And it really always comes down to freedom. Mm -hmm. How were you able to really figure out the importance of freedom in your life? And I guess for people listening, you know, they might not see freedom in like the dynamic, colorful way that we do and the way that it really is that like, fuel for us. So how do you see freedom playing such a big role in
0: your life? Yeah, I think um, freedom is so relative to people, you know, freedom to one person could be, I want to be able to go to TJ Maxx and buy the jeans from like, shit girl, from the seven jeans one. Exactly. Bitch. Yes. I want to go and be able to buy the page jeans. Yes. And not the ones that are on discount in the back of the store. Or, you know, um, someone else's idea of freedom could be, I want to be able to take my family on a European vacation and not have to nickel and dime the entire experience. Somebody else's idea of freedom may be, I want to live in the Hollywood Hills and drive a Range Rover and, you know, have a beach house in Malibu. Mm-hmm. Somebody else's idea of freedom may be like, I just, I want to be able to wake up every day and, you know, not have to put a suit on and go into an office. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's first getting clear on what does freedom mean to you. Um, I always like to, to give examples of, of tangible kind of I, vision vision ideas because that's what helps me so that was the first thing for me is really clearly defining freedom and I think a lot of times people feel like they can't get what they want because they don't know what they want and that could be true but but we we always know what we want because we always know what we don't want and so if we can start with what we don't want and so that's what I think with like a an idea of like a freedom list like write down all the things that you no longer want to experience I no longer want to, you know, have to have a car note, I no longer want to whatever those things that you feel you are a prisoner to, metaphorically, etc, write those down. And then you can very clearly start to see the antithesis or the opposite of those things, and start mapping out what freedom means to you. Um, Once you're able to get clear on that, then you can start working towards how to activate that and and get to that place in your own life. And So for me, freedom for a long time was, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to feel like my paycheck was contingent on somebody giving it to me. So there's some pressure there on my end to make it happen. I have to give it to myself, but it's ultimately up to me. And for me, there's a lot of freedom that comes with that. I wanted to be able to work from anywhere. For me, there's a lot of freedom that comes with that. Um, you know, my, my husband travels a lot for his work. So I wanted to be able to travel with him if I wanted to, um, you know, but, and and then in some ways, you know, I have friends that they don't ever want to have kids because they don't see a freedom in in having children. They see more freedom in not having children. To me, um, children give me a lot of freedom because they keep me in check. They make me stay present. And to me, it's so easy for me to kind of like go in 15,000 different directions and not stay in the present moment. And so, presence to me is freedom. Mm. And, you know, I, I think that it's, it's kind of really mapping what those things may be for each and every person. And, um, and I say that in the book, I, you know, being a prisoner to nothing or no one, that's a big thing for me. Um, feeling that I am free, I am at liberty to think and feel for myself and to make my own decisions and to... You know, live and act as if I am coming from this place of choices. 100%. Yeah, freedom is, it's like, for me, it's like a
1: frictionless existence. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I'm going to wake up. What do I want to do? Right. What's going on? Do I want to buy this? Maybe it's a $10 drink. Do I want to not be scared to do it? Do Mm -hmm. I want to travel to this place? Do I want to? And it's funny because it's like, I thought before it would would be way more exorbitant than what it is. Mm. Like, it's really actually not that. It's very simple. Mm. You know, it's when do I want to work? How do I want to work? How do I want to talk? How do I want to live? How do I want to dress? How do I want to be? And it just, it's the frictionless existence of being able to just be myself as much as I can in that freedom. So I really loved that you spoke about that. the last question before I want to talk a little bit about the book is talking about God and spirituality and your relationship with source. And I think sometimes, you know, in our community, they're like, God, Chris is talking about God again. (laughs) And it's really just like that, you know, the organizing principle for me of Mm -hmm. spirituality being the cornerstone of my life and being my, the spiritual being, being the cornerstone of my life. So what is your relationship to God or source? And how do you really, how does it work in your day-to-day life?
0: Yeah. Um, I was raised Southern Baptist. Sexy. Um, so, you know, it that was interesting. Um, did you get baptized? I did. I had a friend that was Southern Baptist
1: and I got baptized with her. Yeah. I was like 14. Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. About the like, same. Sure. Yeah. 13, 14. The biggest gift that came out of me being in such a conservative, denominated religion growing up was that I have always had a strong unwavering divine connection to God. It's always been there. And that's one of the things my, my husband was raised Catholic, which is surprising that he said this because Catholics, I would think too, but he's like, you, you have a faith about you that is like, you are so rooted in your faith, your belief of what is possible, your belief in what it is that you want, and you go and you get it because you have this faith about you. And I I really do have to give, you know, my my mom especially, um, and being being raised like that, going to church every single Sunday, going to church every single Wednesday night, being in the choir, you know, learning those Bible studies. And even though I could not be more farther removed from that denomination now in my life, I really am so thankful that I had that. My grandmother was Pentecostal, and so she actually would speak in tongues and handle snakes and all of that. And I remember being very terrified going to church with her when I was young because it wasn't the norm for the Baptist. But now having... what's What's the snakes? The snake, they handle snakes, so they feel like the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit can can actually kind of come through the work of the snake, like from Genesis or something, or like from the Adam and Eve story. I think it's something to do with the old Testament and then speaking in tongues, that is the Holy spirit speaking through you. Got Um, but what I kind of have learned now through my process of, you know, I don't identify as, um, Baptist at all. Um, I, I do love the teachings of Christ. I think the New Testament is beautiful. Psalms, that the, they some people call themselves red letter Christians, that they, they believe in the red letter of the Bible, which is supposed to be what Jesus actually said. That's all that they follow. Um, so there's a lot to that that I believe, but I am also, um, I am not fully that. Um, you know, there's a lot of Buddhist practices that I believe. There's a lot of just spirituality. If you really start to, study the world religions, it's all the same story. Yes, all comes from the same kind of source and mindset. Um, but for me, I think that having that foundation was huge. And from that being able to give myself the, you know, to get, to get rid of those ideas of, you know, I don't believe in hell, um, in the way that I was taught to, you know, think of that. I, I don't, I don't think it exists, me personally. Um It's right here, baby. <laughs> right. It's all here. If, yeah, really. If there's hell, we're in it. We're yes. <laughs> um but I, so I was able to shed a lot of the things that like scared me about religion. I don't believe that you're supposed to fear God. And I was told that when I was young, you know, you're supposed to fear God. Um, there was a lot of shame around certain things with, you know, sexuality and marriage and all of that, that I don't subscribe to at all with how I was raised, but it's given me this platform to just really have a deeper connection to, to God now. So really, I feel that God is everything and everyone. God is in the plants, in the birds, in each and every one of us. The way that I connect to God is through meditation. Um, I tend to call God, depending, I'll call God Universe, I'll call God Source, I'll call God Higher Power, I'll call God God, I'll call God Jesus. I, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. all it's all the same to me. Um, but really, when I'm in meditation. Um, I work a lot with Oracle cards and decks. And so I feel God really immensely through that work, through journaling, through crystals, through fire. Um, and, and I have my own kind of spiritual practice and it's, it's really beautiful. I do it every morning and, and, um, just being in the receiving mode of that. And, um, I also feel God and all of my ancestors Mm. and really calling on the lineages before me and, and um, what their guidance is, um, I feel like God is is influence. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's 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 the creation of yes. everything. Yeah, and for each person,
1: it can be so different. And it's really just having that support. Mm-hmm. You know, if you know someone always has your back, mm-hmm. it's like how much more confident are you? How much more on purpose are you? How much more capable are you? And um, yeah, I think that's so beautiful. Um, Helps it, me get out of the way too. Like, oh yeah. because
0: I, there's like oh the yeah. stuff that has Julie's name on it. And then there's like everything else that I can give over. Yeah. And when I'm like, okay, I can't figure this out. And I'm tired of trying to micromanage the universe. So I'm just going to give all this yes. over and I'll just hang out here. And then I'll wait for the answers. Mm-hmm. But you have to be in the receiving mode of that, which I get in meditation. 100%. Yeah, I could talk about God forever.
1: Um, Let's talk about Get What You Want, which is your book. We've been talking about this whole podcast. It's so powerful. And I love that you have templates in here. You have like, basically people can use it as a journal and a workbook in itself. But I'd love to talk about who this book is for because people probably know you as, you know, influencer, podcast host, you're someone that like helps so many people with their businesses and just really in a more entrepreneurial sense. So who is this book for?
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's for the woman who for one, if 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 there's a woman who doesn't feel like getting what she wants is possible. Um that's that's the big thing that, you know, especially if you think that getting what you want is not possible, this book is for you. And um, it's for that woman that she's sick and tired of being sick and tired. She's different versions of me that I've explained throughout our conversation. Um, Maybe she feels lost, confused, alone, helpless, like nothing that she's doing is working. She's exhausted, she's depleted. And she's just ready to say, okay, fine, hands up in the air. I don't know what else to do. My next step for her would be to pick up this book. And the first part of the book, I talk a lot about, you know, the origin story and some of the deeper stuff that really kind of keep us limited. And then we go into what's possible, the possibility of our life and of our work and of our business. And then we kind of go into the results and the actions that can come from that. And I think this book is also for maybe there's women out there that like, they're cool. They're like, they've gotten what they want. Fuck they feel yeah. good. You know, it's like, <laughs> they've got the, you know, they've got the relationship. Maybe they've got kids. If, if that's something for them, they love their job, but there's always the, but, um, there's always going to be an upper limit. And I experienced this time and time again, I've, I experienced one very recently just in this last month of this upper limit feeling. And I think that for me, that was another reason why I really wanted To write this book for myself and to do that now, because there's a lot of books that I've read in the self help and leadership space that they're really good about helping me align my goals with my actions, but they're not really good about making me love myself more or making me feel worthy of those goals in the first place. A lot of times, those books leave me more overwhelmed, leave me feeling more helpless and more powerless than I was before I picked them up. So it's like, yay, there's actions and there's things to do, but like, am I actually worthy of wanting this? And so I think that if there's any woman like myself and, you know, maybe like you, Krista, because I feel like we have a lot in common and we're on similar paths, you know, with our development is that we can achieve things and we can, we can make big things happen, but there's always going to be a next level. And there's always going to be this thing that we want and this thing that we aspire to have. And I think that with every dream of a next level or with every next level that you're going to, there's going to be a full on identity crisis. Mm -hmm. And so how do you prepare for that? And so this book would also be for that woman. If, If she's feeling like, I do want more, I want to expand, I want to crack open more, but I'm having these, these limit issues, or, you know, I feel like I should just be satisfied so far with what's happening, or maybe I want to try something new and you know, where is this coming from? There's always a next layer to kind of peel back. So I would say it's for those two types of women.
1: Yes. And just on that quickly, what is an upper limit for people that don't know?
0: I kind of define an upper limit as, you know, um, and it's Gay Hendricks wrote a book Mm -hmm. called The Big Leap. And so this is where it comes from. And so I'll I'll define it kind of in a story. So Gay talks about how he's sitting in an office and it's like this high rise glass office. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Everything is great. He got this promotion. It's awesome. And he can't help but being freaked out and worried about his daughter going to a sleepover that night and if she was going to get scared about not being at home sleeping. And it's like he couldn't allow himself just to revel in the moment of this beautiful, amazing moment that he had just had, that he had just created, that he had just manifested. He had to go immediately into like mm-hmm. problem, problem, problem. And so that's to me kind of an upper limit is that we can achieve all this stuff, but then right when we get to it, it's like we're, we, we can't get further because we have this idea or this belief or this thing that we're telling ourselves that's keeping us from, from expanding to that next level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had it a lot with this book. Um, I'm I sure. share, you know, I I get very vulnerable and I share a lot in this book that I've never shared publicly before. I've never been someone who tends to like be a super open book on Instagram. I I do share a lot on Instagram, but to me, there's a balance between sharing from an open wound kind of bleeding all over everybody versus a scar. Um, I also have a lot of judgment around that. So I will also check myself and be aware in the moment. I I, mean, say no more. I have judgment around people who I think overshare. Yeah. um, And I need to work on that. (laughs) Um, But I felt safe to share here. And I felt like I was in a place to, to share for more of a scar and to share for more of a reflective place. But even kind of opening it back up, I've been having these upper limits of like, oh my gosh, did I make a mistake? Did I share too much? Did I share too sh- soon? You know, what are people going to think? Are people going to judge me? Are they going to take it the wrong way? Like all of this stuff, when really it's, I'm expanding to a next level of growth because I'm communicating at a greater capacity and and my my own belief systems are trying to it, limit me from getting to that next stage. So that's how I would explain yes. an upper limit.
1: yes. Oh <sighs> This has been so much fun. I, I love, so much. I love you. I love talking to you. I just am so excited about the book, you guys. It is so good. I can't wait to like use it because I didn't want to write in it. yet, But I can't wait to like, use it and write in it. And I love the quote polls. You have really, really good quote polls. One of the quote polls that I really loved that you said was a vision without focus is just a fantasy. Mm-hmm. A vision without focus is a fantasy. I love that. There's mm-hmm. so much good in here. So get what you want. Julie Solomon, Influencer Podcast. We 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 were on a few years ago. You can listen to Julie on our show two years ago and find you on Instagram, juliesolomon.com.
0: It's juliesolomon.net. Dot net, Um, You can get the book... Wherever books are sold, wherever you like to buy books. And um, I'm at Joel's J U L S Solomon S O L O M O N on Instagram. And for all of you out there that may be like my husband who's dyslexic that don't like to read books, there is an audible version of it that I got to record, which I really enjoy doing. So um, you can pick up the Audible and you can listen to it. Obviously, you love to listen to things because you're a podcast listener. So that may be a better, a better fit for you. But I love you so much. Love you. I love Lindsay so much. You I know, know I always have you guys in my heart and I always have Aww. your back. And I can't wait to have you both back on to talk about your future book that oh, you yes. will be writing.
1: <laughs> Books it's in are your happening, heart, baby. Yes, they are. Now I feel that's an upper limit moment. You know, now but now I feel so rooted in what I'm actually gonna write a book about that it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like it's just like the book where people are like, what are your tools and tactics for living a whatever? Be yourself. Yeah, literally. It's like, (laughs) be authentic, be authentic. Okay. We love you guys. We'll see you soon. Bye.
0: As always, thank you so much for joining me today and every week here on the Influencer Podcast.